0: I'm Josh Hammer.
1: And I'm Ungar Ungersargon.
0: And this is The Debate, a podcast by Newsweek. So, Badya, we're going to listen today to two highly qualified debaters talking about kind of the recent spate of voting, election legislation proliferating across. A lot of Republican-governed states. So one, you kind of tell us a little bit about what we're about to hear from?
1: Yeah, we're going to hear from Armstrong Williams, an American political commentator, entrepreneur, author, and talk show host of the nationally syndicated The Armstrong Williams Show, and Ambassador Alan Katz, a former city commissioner of Tallahassee who served as President Obama's ambassador to Portugal and is more recently the founder of American Public Square, an organization that uses civil discourse to bridge the partisan divide, much like we are trying to do here. I think the big questions that I'm going to have for them Is First of all, how does President Trump's insistence that he won the election play into these new uh, voter laws? And also, to what extent is race a central part of this conversation? I'm really excited to ask them about that. What about you, Josh?
0: I find this issue just frustrating, frankly, um, in a way that I don't find a lot of other issues. Uh, it seems like there are a lot of very, very legitimate kind of uh, important topics um, for Americans to kind of air out there. And certainly on this podcast, we do our fair share of of, of hosting and airing a lot of those important discussions. Um, I, I, I find that this one really, or at least I, I, I should say, I personally think that this one just does not rise to that level. Um, obviously, voting an election these are these are important things and a lot of blood has been shed in american history trying to fight for rights but uh, a lot of these issues kind of call for prudence and and statesmanship i think in a way that kind of uh, blind, zealous ideology doesn't necessarily um, hit on. But anyway, um, all that to say, I have no idea where we're going to hear from. So maybe maybe we'll actually hear some prudence and statesmanship and not some kind of uh, hard hitting uh, ideology or partisanship. So, uh, you know, on that note, uh, let's take it to a quick break. And when we come back, we are going to hear Armstrong Williams and Ambassador Alan Katz debating voting rights and election integrity. Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. We got a really, really interesting, lively debate coming up. We're talking about the spate of voting rights legislation that's proliferating, of course, across Republican-governed states. Badia, why don't you tell us a little bit about who we're going to hear from today?
1: We could not be more thrilled with today's guest's We are so excited to have Armstrong Williams here. Armstrong is an American political commentator, an entrepreneur, an author, and a talk show host, and he is the host of the nationally syndicated television program, The Armstrong Williams Show. We also have Ambassador Alan Katz here, the former city commissioner of Tallahassee, who served as President Obama's ambassador to Portugal. He's also the founder of American Public Square, an organization using civil discourse to bridge the partisan divide. Armstrong, Alan, we are so thrilled to have you.
2: Thank you, and Ambassador, it's a pleasure to meet you, and I look forward to the debate. Well, thank you very much. I feel exactly the
3: same way.
1: All right, so we're here to talk about the Republican Party's new spate of voting laws. So there's over 300 bills across the country and what they're looking to do is limit mail-in voting, strengthen voter ID laws, shorten early voting, and also remove people from voter rolls in some cases. So let's start by having each of you lay out your case, your position, how do you feel about these new voting laws? Um, let's start with you, Armstrong.
2: Well, racism and Jim Crow are not the most constructive ways to labor our voting crisis in the United States. It's restrictive, and some of the bills are aligning with some states that have automatic ID requirements, such as President Biden's home state of Delaware. And and then there are other democratic strongholds such as Connecticut. And, and Connecticut has no early voting at all, in New York, where you are, um, but uh, your on, uh, onerous rules for voters to change their res- registration once in advance if they want to participate in their party primary. Mm-hmm. And in a place like Rhode Island, Democrats enacted a decade ago the kind of photo ID law that the party has labeled racist when drafted by Republicans. And so the state also requires voters to get the signature of not one, but two witnesses when casting an absentee ballot. Only in Alabama and North Carolina are similarly, have those restrictions. And so uh, even according to a news analyst released this week by the Nonpartisan Center for Election Innovation and Research, Delaware, Connecticut, and New York, get a load of this, Professor Katz, rank in the bottom third of states in their access to early and mail-in balloting. Why is there not an outcry? And maybe, maybe, as I wrap this up, maybe, Ambassador Katz, we should consider a federal holiday to vote. I know that may surprise you. We need to compromise on this issue, but we shouldn't get rid of the filibuster since the 1965 Voting Rights Act renewal came as a result of Republicans renewed it from Reagan to Bush. And it wasn't until Shelby versus Holder Did we see these drastic changes to the process? And so some states, I will admit, do have these draconian laws, and we need to change that, I will agree. But we shouldn't have people standing in line for nine hours to vote. We have to make the process efficient and streamlined and when you reduce the issue to race which is where i have my issue we don't really solve this problem instead we cause further divisions and that's not why we're here today we want to put real thought into how we can move forward because when you think you say race, you, you you know everything you literally don't know anything we're here to resolve these divisions not further inside these divisions
3: okay uh, there's a lot to unpack there so let me try and sort of uh, take take them one at a time first of all Uh, Citing example, there are examples that you cited which are accurate about some states in terms of what uh, the the voter access is not as widespread as it is in other states. I don't think they ought to be the model, though, for states in terms of sort of like making their their voting laws more restrictive. I have no problem with the idea of uh, voter ID. I think the question needs to be, what, would, what suffices for voter ID? Maybe it's a utility bill. Maybe it's some indication. Because I think most people, regardless of race or our party, believe that no one should be voting in the name of someone else. And in all honesty, if we look at what we know in terms of voter fraud, since the days of the big city machines, which frankly go We have to go back 20 30 40 years to find real examples of it we don't have any cases of systemic voter fraud in the united states so the real issue becomes one of what do you really want to accomplish here what i think we want to accomplish here is that we want more people to vote we want to make it easier for people who are eligible to vote to vote and we want their votes all counted and we all want it to be accurate and as i've said to several of my republican friends you know if you spent more time trying to convince these people to vote for you and less time trying to keep them from voting, you probably would come out a lot better. And finally, let me I want to address the issue of race, because I think that what we have here is this. It is far too easy to sort of use race as the basis on both sides to either talk about oh, a a bad bill is a racist bill. And my view sometimes is, you know what, a bad bill, maybe just should be a bad bill. And and, and the idea, and I think we take the term and we throw it around way too much. I think there is racism in this country. I think there's institutional racism in this country. However, everything that I don't agree with isn't racist. Everything that that, that a Republican wants to do isn't racist. And so I think the farther we can get away from that and focus on what the real issue is here, I think the better off we are. And finally on the filibuster, let me just add one thing. The filibuster, in my opinion, Uh, there are lots of ways you can deal with it. You can lower the number. You lowered it from 67 to 60. It's not like the number is in when it's happened before. You lower it to 55. Maybe in these partisan times, that's a more realistic way to go. You can carve out an exception for voting rights because that's a fundamental right. All I'm trying to say here is is that there are ways to go forward without calling people names and working very hard to keep more people from having an opportunity to vote.
1: So Armstrong, I want to pick up on something Alan just said, which is um, why aren't Republicans spending more time trying to get people to vote for them instead of trying to keep people from voting? And I want to actually read you a quote um, from an interview you gave to The New York Times in 2020. So this is what you said, and I think there's a lot of insight here. You said most blacks are socially conservative. There's just one issue that they don't believe the Republican Party can get right. It's not the economy. It's not creating more jobs. It's not creating wealth and economic opportunity. They don't trust the Republican Party on the issue of race. For some reason, they believe that if the Republicans win, they'll turn back the clock. I think that there is so much insight there, and people really don't talk about this as much. But my question would be, aren't these voting laws, even if they are uh, commonsensical, don't they have the feel of (laughs) turning back the clock? Wouldn't a black person in the South, isn't it reasonable for them to be like, I've seen this before, and shouldn't the GOP be putting its efforts in exactly, as Alan says, the opposite kinds of measures in order to convince black people that they're not racist, that they should be voting for them?
2: So, you know, listen, uh, it is the GOP's Achilles heel, and unfortunately, Um, It's not just um, when we talk about perception of whether black voters believe the Republicans want to turn back the clock. Is that the Democrats uh, in politics, they exploit this as every reason. and And I like what Ambassador Katz just said. That everything that the republican party does has little nothing to do with racism systemic racism exists we agree on that so it's not just the policies of the party it's just that um, the democrats have used this as a wedge issue to try to keep control of that voting block and what happens is and, and my issue with this because um i remember when the georgia law was first revealed in the mainstream press and all of a sudden the major league major league baseball got involved I actually thought maybe the Republicans were trying to push legislation that was trying to take us back to the days of yore. So what I decided to do, and I I make this point because I'm going somewhere with this narrative, I decided to read the bill. And when I read the bill, Ambassador Katz, I thought it was far more progressive than I could imagine. There was nothing in there. It was, yes, there were some things in there that may have been draconian. There are some things in there that may have been restrictive, but asking people, To vote, as the ambassador just pointed out, whether it's a bank statement, whether it's a utility bill, some form of ID also protects the integrity of the voting process. But to have someone believe that because they're asking you for an ID, Is because of racism. It's just absolutely insane. And so most people are not going to take the time to read the legislation. They put such trust in other people. And this is on both sides, both parties, the Republicans and the Democrats do this well. They don't get caught up in the issues. They get caught up in the party labor. If the Democratic Party says this, this is what I'm going to believe. If the Republican Party says this, this is what I'm going to believe. What you have to encourage people to do is really study the legislation, read it, and come to conclusions for themselves. You know, and and like the ambassador was saying when we talked about the issue of race, I'm not using it as a model. I'm pointing out the hypocrisy of some Democrats to only highlight what they deem, and I took these notes while he was talking, as problems in Republican-led states while ignoring the obvious similarities in their own states. I mentioned those states earlier because if those were republican-led states it would be an outcry of racism so my point is what is the principle i'm not interested in the politics and where you defy people let's have a consistent policy that is consistent where it does not disenfranchise people but it does also protect the integrity of the process the integrity of the process is important and so i and i don't think the republicans do a very good job of messaging it well I don't think they do a very good job of explaining it well and i also think because they have this mentality that they're not going to get a sizable now of this vote that just it's not worth them to debate it and earn the trust of that constituency my attitude is every vote if you just convince one person you should fight for that vote because it's not about black and white it's about the voting process and the other thing that we've not pointed out most of these states have no issues of tampering and voter fraud. There are very few states where these accusations are actually leveled. Let's deal with the issue, but the problem is when you're getting into a midterm election, these parties will do anything to malign, disenfranchise, and make people believe that it's about race, either it's about welfare, or the Democrats are trying to roll back our rights, they're, they're against capitalism, they're for socialism. All these things have far-reaching consequences if we don't step back and say, read it for yourself, we need people like Ambassador Cass who really don't care about the politics, but care about the integrity of the process.
3: Yeah, let, let, me, let me make a couple uh, points here. First of all, let's remember, the reason we have this huge rush of laws that are being pr- proposed around the country is primarily an outgrowth of the big lie that somehow this election was stolen. And I think all, most objective observers would say that there's no evidence that this election was stolen. Was, it, was there, were there uh, problems in some of the voting places throughout the country? Yes. Are there problems every election when you 150 million people vote? Yes. Or is there anything that stood out this time that was more so? Uh, I think all independent assessment, uh, given all the lawsuits, et cetera, would, would indicate no. As far, and as far as the Georgia, I, I also took the trouble of reading the Georgia law, and I thought that uh, some of my Democratic friends had fallen into hyperbole uh, in, in overdrive. I would say, though, that the one thing about it that bothers me is allowing the state legislature, in effect, to determine at the end of the day if there is an election dispute because I think that is an invitation to mischief, and we saw that uh, former President Trump tried to use that. Finally, on the issue of the Democrats using using race as a wedge issue, of course that's correct. It's also true the Republicans began, I don't know whether they began, I don't know who began, it doesn't really matter who started. We all know the Southern strategy that started with Nixon back in 68, and basically the notion uh, when the Civil Rights Act passed, as Lyndon Johnson pointed out, he knew the Democrats would lose the South for at least a generation, And unfortunately, all those Dixiecrats, all those white uh, uh, Democrats, they're now all Republicans. And uh, I think race is an issue that both parties have used to their advantage. And my hope is that we can get past that, because otherwise we we wind up, because I don't believe everything should be viewed through a racial lens. I know there's some people that think that it should be. My sense of things is all it does is confuses us in, in, in attacking some of the problems that we have to attack in this country.
2: If I could add something, if I may, and this is so true what the ambassador is saying. It all started with former President Donald Trump alleging that the election was stolen. And Listen, my expectations, knowing the former president as long as I have and what he alleged, did not surprise me. What surprised me were the Republicans who were really to put their integrity and their credibility on the line to defend him. And that process. This is why, when Liz Cheney was removed for a leadership position, I thought it was a cowardice position because we're not disagreeing with Donald Trump because he's a Republican or whatever. We're disagreeing with him because he was absolutely wrong. What he said uh, had an impact on this entire country and on this process, and they allowed him to become, they became his enablers. You know, while There are things that I may praise them on in the past. I am not going to compromise my integrity and my credibility with the people that trust me on our broadcast platforms, because let's not forget, I am not just a host of a TV show. I own network television stations across the country. It is my credibility, and I am not going to defend a process that is immoral. And what President Trump did, he did a disservice. And you have to admire people like Mitch McConnell and the few who decided to stand in the gap and say, no, I'm not going to tolerate this. this did that not happen? The Republicans, to me, are more responsible for this narrative that the election was was, was stolen, that Donald Trump was somehow going to return to office. And, and so they did not stand up and take on Donald Trump. And Donald Trump continues to have this huge impact on the Republican Party because they're afraid that they may lose, they may not raise, raise the kind of money. But to me, there are some things that are more important than money. Than winning, and it is principle. And so, you know, even for me, when I said to a constituency before January 6th, there is no way Donald Trump is going to be president on January 20th, it's just not going to happen. I may have lost thousands of followers, I did not care. But in the end, four or five months later, I, we got more followers and more credibility because I stood on principle, and that's what's wrong with this country today. You got to call a spade a spade, whether it's a Democrat, because it's not about whether it's a Democrat, that's a, a Republican. it's about whether it's right or wrong. And the election was not stolen. And as Ambassador Cass said, they're always robbers. Remember Bush versus Gore. Al Gore could have challenged the process. But what did he do? He did the statesman, he took the statesman way out. He said, I conceded. He did not have to concede. There were people in his own party asked him to fight it until the end. He showed leadership. He showed that he cared more about the process than about the fact that he may have had a rational reason to push for and delay the process. But he's handled it just like Hillary Clinton when she lost to Donald Trump. There were those who told her not to concede, but she said, no, I don't want this process to go forward. That should have been the same situation when Donald Trump lost the election. He should have conceded much earlier. And if he did and he he's shown leadership, Uh, and not being totally absorbed by himself and his ego and his being self-centered where he cared more about himself than the country, we would not have a lot of these issues that we're debating today.
0: All right. So there's really a lot to unpack here. Um, A couple of quick notes from my perspective. One, on this uh, notion that has come up about the uh, so-called Richard Nixon Southern strategy, there is some merit to that. On the other hand, my friend uh, Dan McLaughlin Harvard Law School grad, National Review writer, former prolific Red State blogger, had an all time great blog post, like four or 5,000 word blog post years ago. Just going into like granular local community level data, just totally debunking this claim. I think it's one of the great unfounded myths in in 20th century American history, actually. In fact, if you go to the community and local level, large numbers of jurisdictions in the American South actually started voting for Republicans in the 1950s on primarily economic issues. A solid 10 to 15 years before Nixon even started talking about racial issues. So it's, it's true to an extent, but I, I just feel a need to kind of get a counter perspective in on that. Also, just, this is kind of going to lean to my question a little bit. Um, Ambassador, if I'm being fully candid here, I'm a little disappointed to hear you use the phrase big lie. I was actually at Treblinka in Poland uh, about three or four weeks ago. That was the big lie, a kind of cartoonish acting president spewing Nonsense from the stump, I think, is quite different than uh, than Gerbil. But more generally speaking, here it kind of is leading to my actual question, um, which is just the ridiculously toxic, overheated nature of this discussion, frankly, um, and not just. No, I'm, not, I'm not talking about this discussion between Ambassador and Armstrong. Just on the national discussion in general, we've already talked about kind of just the weaponization of race and the rhetoric. Of Jim Crow. I mean, let's kind of think soberly about what happened here. We had a once a century pandemic last year, and across a lot of state jurisdictions, they kind of did once, uh, once a lifetime, once a generation expansion of voting rights. Very kind of ad hoc measures that I think few would have objected to on kind of the policy merits to expand voting access. Uh, you know, amidst this unprecedented situation, a lot of those. Changes in the law, by the way, were actually um, illegal. The Constitution, kind of, uh, quite, I'm a constitutional lawyer right trained. The Constitution quite clearly places the exclusive prerogative to change voting law in the state legislatures, that, but, you know, contrary to what happened in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, among other jurisdictions. But it seems, in my perspective, a lot of what is going on right now is actually just a return to the status quo ante. It's basically. And, and, it's, and Armstrong, I'd be curious to kind of get, get your take on this first. Isn't what's going on here just kind of an old school kind of center-left bait-and-switch, kind of a, a, a switching of the goalposts here where kind of a, a once-a-century pandemic baseline of kind of uh, liberal voting access is set as a new normal and that kind of a return to the pre-pandemic status quo ante the way it was is now deemed kind of racist, bigoted Jim Crow? Uh,
2: y- yes, it is a, a bait-and-switch. That's being fully exploited by both parties. I mean, and the thing that people don't understand um, over the last 16 months, America has become transformative. I mean, it will never be the same again. And and I like what you said about the Southern strategy, because um, people like to mix the, the Democratic Party as the good guys and the Republican Party as the bad guys. And it hinges And a lot of this goes back, which is true, hinges on the so-called Southern strategy, which people continue to introduce. Uh, And and according to this narrative that has been advanced by progressive historians, too, Nixon orchestrated this party switch on civil rights by converting the races in the Democratic Party, the the infamous Democrats, into Republicans. And now, according um, to what you hear today, especially when Trump was in office, that President Trump is the true heir the beneficiary of the policies that the party had pursued for more than half a century. And yet this story is in the textbooks. And in and on, and I, I, listen, I even saw this story on the history channel, which when I really realized, man, this is serious and, and repeatedly repeated in the media, but it, 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 but is it true? First, no one has ever given a simple example of an explicit racist pitch by Nixon during his long career. No one one might expect that a a racist appeal to the deep south actually would have to be made and to be understood as such, yet quietly, evidently none was. And so the thing about it, progressive and progressives as they tried they tried to tie to the Trump administration, and they tried to tie the Republicans, they insist that Nixon made a racist dog whistle appeal to the deep south voters. Evidently, he spoke to them in a kind of a code is what they talk about. But is it plausible that Nixon figured out, as many are trying to do today, as goes back to what you mentioned, how to communicate with deep South races in a secret language? And do deep South them bigots like dogs have some kind of heightened awareness of racial messages that are somehow indis- indecipherable to the media and the rest of the country? And so the problem is there seems to be unlikely, but let's consider this possibility. Progressives insist that Nixon's appeals to drugs and law and order were coded racist message. Yet, when Nixon ran for president in 1968, the main issue was the Vietnam War. And one popular Republican slogan of that period, if I remind you, described the Democrats as the party of acid, amnesty, and abortion. Clearly, there is no suggestion here of race. So the point is, is that we keep fueling these old narratives, we keep fueling these old labels, and we never, ever make progress because we're still holding on to these labels of the past.
1: We're definitely going to give you a chance to respond, Alan, but we have to take a break. This is The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. Stay tuned for Alan's response. Stick with us. Welcome back. This is The Debate, a podcast brought to you by Newsweek. Our guests are Armstrong Williams and Alan Katz. So we're talking a little bit about the ways in which race has been informing, as well as maybe even weaponized by both parties, or the ways in which that narrative is not true. So Armstrong, why don't you finish your point, and then we're going to kick it to Alan.
2: You know, I I want to say this to the, the ambassador. What is often lost is that Nixon had an excellent record on civil rights. He supported the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voter Rights Act of 1965. He was an avid champion of desegregation of the public schools. I don't know if you remember this progressive columnist, Tom Wicker, who was writing in the New York Times. You remember him? And he said once, there's no doubt about it, the Nixon administration accomplished more in 1970 to desegregate Southern school systems that had been done in the 16 previous years, probably since. And there's no doubt either that if it was Richard Nixon personally who conceived and led the administration's segregation effort upon taking office in 1961, he put into effect America's first affirmative action program that people still celebrate and try to implement today. And he doesn't give it credit, and he didn't do it because he's a Republican. He believed, He did it because he realized it was necessary to move this country forward beyond race and really empower blacks not for the moment that he was in office but for for, for well into the future
3: okay let me try and sort of unpack a whole bunch of things here uh first first of all i think that uh I, i would agree with what armstrong just said in terms of nixon personally and what he was able to accomplish uh in his uh first term when he was president but to go back in time to something that josh referred to you may believe that there were movements of republicans in the south in the 50s But I would like to point out that in 1956, Adlai Stevenson, the liberal, intellectual, former governor of Illinois, beat Dwight Eisenhower, the uh, uh, war hero, in virtually every southern state. And he did it because, for two reasons. Number one, because he was a Democrat. And number two, blacks were not allowed to vote. The other thing to keep in mind is this, is that the Republican Party, remember, was the party of Lincoln. And the Republican Party actually received a large number of African-American votes for a long period of time. The turning point, and the turning point was not in terms of a huge amount, but a small amount, which helped elect John Kennedy, was John Kennedy's calling uh, Coretta King when uh, Martin Luther King was arrested. This is a symbolically uh, changed things. Johnson knew, with the Civil Rights Act of 64, and said it as much, that this would cost the Democrats of the South for at least a generation, which turned out to be uh, prophetic uh 1968 what nixon did was he realized that what he needed to do was he had george wallace running as a third party candidate he needed to figure out what it was going to be and as far as the uh the campaign was concerned the the bulk of his campaign was not on the vietnam war i'm old enough to remember it uh it was on law and order and law and order was what was the theme and if you look at some of the commercials from that time you see hubert Humphreys smiling and then you see cities burning and so what happened was, I think that that was, you know, do I believe that that made him a racist? No. Do I believe that he, his team decided that that would help them get elected in terms of uh, racial, sowing racial divisions? The answer was uh, appealing more to working class white people with that theme. I think the answer to that question is yes. I think that the other thing that, that, that really is important to keep in mind is that we talk about when I, you know, Josh, you sort of didn't like that I referred to the big lie as, as, as former President Trump's uh, announcement continued, continue, by the way, which he says to this day. The election was stolen. It was stolen. It was stolen. And I agree with Armstrong that what is what is frankly pathetic is the lack of courage of Republican leaders to look up and face the facts. We have this incredible thing going on in Arizona now, which I can't even describe what it means in terms of this recount. We have a candidate in Missouri running for the U.S. Senate, the former governor who resigned in disgrace, who is out there right now, quote, helping with that particular recount, with a hope to get Trump, Trump's endorsement in the race. What's happened really is is that we can't, and this is true of both parties. By the way, this is not just true of, of the vote. Both parties have a very difficult time looking at the bad actors in their own party and calling them out. And what I tell all my Democratic friends is, you know. If we want to straighten things out, we need Republicans to point out when Republicans do bad things. We need Democrats to point out when Democrats do bad things. And in that case, what happens is maybe we can make some progress. Because right now, if a Republican attacks a Democrat, the Democrats don't care. And if a Democrat attacks a Republican, the Republicans don't care. And and finally, let me just sort of throw one other thought out there, too. One can argue that that a lot of these uh, election law provisions are not race-based. But I haven't seen any of them try. What would you think if suddenly uh, a Democratic legislature said, well, we're going to restrict the number of voting places in rural parts of the state? Let's just sort of, well, we got a bunch of counties out here. They can all, they can all go 30 miles or 40 miles to vote. The reaction would be they're trying to discourage Republican voters. And by the way, if they did something like that, they'd probably be right. So all I'm trying to say here is, is and, and well, I'm sorry, one final point. We have a history in this country of keeping minorities from voting. And when people talk about not wanting the federal government involved, well, if the federal government hadn't been involved, black people wouldn't be voting, women wouldn't be voting, 18-year-olds wouldn't be voting. It was all done at the federal level through constitutional amendments. So my whole point here is because it comes from the federal government, doesn't make it bad by definition, nor does it make it good. And the fact is what has happened before matters because it informs how we look at things. And if we ignore the past, then we, I think, are destined to repeat it.
1: Yeah, Armstrong, I want to. I want you to respond to that because you made two points. First, you said this is not about race because these are, you know, commonsensical rules. And you also then conceded that uh, the election did very fairly go to President Biden, even though former President Trump has consistently said that he won the election. But these laws are coming very much in response to what Republicans see as problems with an election that you don't think exists. So that, that was the impetus for these laws. And, and so those don't exist. But what does exist is a history in America of trying to keep black people from voting. And those two things together I even, yes, I've read the bill. I look at those, the new provision. I thought well, this is commonsensical. I've always been surprised when I go to vote and they don't ask me for ID. I'm like, how do you know I'm me? It's commonsensical. I, I totally concede that. But at the same time, with our history of trying to keep black people from voting, I just feel queasy when I think about any effort that, if, that in practice, if not in intent, does that even though a lot of people do see intent here, and it's I think that some of them have, have really good reason to do so. So can you speak to that, to A, why our history doesn't mean that we should be as expansive as possible when it comes to voting, given especially the fact that you don't think that there were a lot of illeg- irregularities in the previous uh, election?
2: You know, we have to... I, I think they're all excellent questions. Um, um, you know, we really have to separate. You know, for me... Um, I've invested so much in my philosophy over the last several decades, but you know, if I find a higher truth, I'm willing to abandon it on the moment at at the drop of a dime. Because, but there's some of us who've invested so much in our philosophy that even when it's proven wrong, we won't abandon it. We just won't. And that's part of the issue. And so I'm gonna say this to you uh, because some of these things I've not really thought deeply about, but I'm really listening intently today. And I think, what I've concluded based on the question that you asked me is that we have to acknowledge the systemic racism. You know, oftentimes we like to talk about the racism of the individual. I think most Americans, I would say 70% of Americans are beyond that, but there's systemic racism that still exists in these institutions. And it is important that both political parties cooperate together to strengthen the integrity of the voting process, while also maintaining access for all legally eligible voters to participate. Black people, and this is what bothers me, are so smart. They're smart enough to get, as you said about the ID, to get and show IDs to vote. They just need to make sure they have easy access to those requirements. We should not do anything to make it difficult, just like somebody in a voting line. No matter what the rules and regulations are, if you're in a line for four hours, what is the problem with giving somebody water? What is the issue? I mean, some people may have medicine, some people may have medical issues. What's the issue? Why would you want to debate giving someone water? You just got to use common sense. It is as simple as that, Um, Batya. If we're going to strengthen the laws, make sure everyone has access, to what is required
3: let me just add too because i think you talk about what this what happened in this last election where it was unprecedented because of covid and because of mail-in voting became a much more widespread uh form for 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 very practical reasons and josh you indicated that somehow this was violating the constitution in pennsylvania was a was one of the examples you used memory serves me right it went to the pennsylvania supreme court they are the arbiters of the impact of the constitution of Pennsylvania. And so you may not agree with their decision, but the point is, is it wasn't like it was just some willy nilly thing that happened. And, and I think that what's important is this. I think there are reasons that we can all argue and disagree uh, intelligently about a lot, of, a lot of different things. But I think what, what I'd like to think that we could agree on is this. We could agree on the fact that we want only people voting who are eligible to vote. And we want everyone who's eligible to vote to have it as easy as possible for them to vote. And if we took those two guiding principles, and if the parties would take those two guiding principles, this is not a big problem. But because each side is using it to turn, since everything has become a zero-sum game, we don't seem to be able to sort of move forward. So I would propose, uh, Armstrong, when you talk about this on your next show, why don't you sort of throw the challenge out to Democrats and Republicans and sort of say, okay, folks, these two things everybody agrees on, why don't we use this as the basis to go forward?
0: So I I don't remember the Pennsylvania case well enough to opine in a granular level of detail. If I I recall there, I think the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court kind of, um, in law we would say, sua sponte of its own volition, kind of extended the timeline by which post-November 3 mail-in ballots could be be counted in, in contravention of the state legislature's text, if not intent. Uh, but it's really—it's not worth kind of uh, relitigating any particular thing there. But to kind of make a broader point, though, um, because again, you know, I think the law here is is is, cer- is certainly important. Um, voting in the United States—you know—constitutional structure going back to the beginning has um, always it is it, it has always kind of been um, a, a a state issue. Now there are obviously constitutional amendment exceptions to that. The Fifteenth Amendment, of course, is the Reconstruction Amendment era uh, uh, about uh, the right to vote for uh, former slaves. And there's a the 19th Amendment extending the franchise to women. The 24th Amendment got rid of the poll tax. The 26th Amendment extended the franchise to those under 18. The Voting Rights Act, of course, in 1965, there's some statutes in addition to the constitutional amendments. But the point here is that with the exception of where the federal government has chosen to intervene, it's been historically understood as a, as a, as a state issue, just to kind of contextualize that here. But let me just kind of propose a possible compromise. I'd be curious for both of your takes on this. Uh, Let me try and play an uncharacteristic role of mediator. Um, Because it seems to me like in this particular exchange, in this particular debate, there is such an obvious compromise that I think both parties could very clearly get behind. Personally, um, I find the notion that, um, you know, voter ID is so-called racist, um, laughable i mean um you know jason whitlock I, I i basically tweeted that it was a soft bigotry of low expectations kind of challenging george w bush quote jason quote tweeted my tweet and said it's not soft bigotry it's just bigotry um and like, that's kind of frankly how how i view it early voting in particular though i i wish there was more robust discussion about this um you know er, early voting is from my perspective i understand that a lot of people can, of course, take time off work, but um, voting historically has been understood as, as a snapshot in time. It's not a moving target. I mean, think about people who were voting last September 30th, October one, before kind of the New York Post Hunter Biden stuff came out, right? Um, so, allow me to, with that kind of context in mind, allow me to propose my compromise: federal statute, or let's just, you know, let's just call it a constitutional amendment. Constitutional amendment to make national uh, voting day like a a, a total day off. Like, like, like it's like completely illegal for like an employer to mandate you to show up to work that day. Um, uh, And and with that in mind, you know, we 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 get rid of early voting and absentee voting for, you know, all but active duty military, those who are bedridden in nursing homes. There There will of course always be limited dispensations. Um, than with um, some sort of voter ID requirement as well. Because like Badia says, that just strikes me as total common sense. Is is there anything wrong with that compromise?
2: You know, I do think we need a 21st century voting rights approach. Uh, You know, I read um, Joe Manchin's compromise in preparing for this podcast. And, And what is interesting is that most states got it right, Ambassador, and... And, and, they, and what they're doing now is a patchwork for a problem that doesn't really exist in many ways. Uh, and what we have to do is satisfy the problem, as we said, make it accessible. And look, I, I, I think Josh makes a very good point. Because listen, as an employer with a lot of employees, on Election Day, you don't get much done anyhow. Everybody's focuses on what's going on in Election <laughs> Day. There's nothing <laughs> that happens in the office. It's just as well being holiday. I go to the voting polls and depending on the line, there's no telling when I get back to the office. So it makes sense to make it a national holiday. Why not? And even if you're going to do these absentee ballots, my God, you get them weeks in advance, have them counted kind of, so you know that, that, what the numbers are on election day. Why, why even drag this out? And so, you know, our elections are um, decentralized under our Constitution, as Josh was pointed to. Uh, the federal was strengthened under Section 4 of the Voter Rights Act or either they going to dilute it. And so, and as he mentioned, the 13th and 19th Amendment didn't clearly give the right to everyone. It did not. And what H.R. 1 is trying to do, and this is the compromise, we have to find a solution that takes away some of the ingredients that the Democrats added, like this campaign finance reform, this dirty money, um, whether you can afford to run for office, and, and strip it down to a voting rights bill instead of a complete overhaul. What we need is a voting rights bill. And that's what the compromise should be. And yes, I think a good start is making it a federal holiday. Well,
3: two things, first of all, the idea of it being a federal holiday. Uh, in fact, Pierre Salinger, when he was a senator from was from uh, California back in 1964, suggested it be a 24 hour vote. The polls would be open for 24 hours on there. So that basically if you worked, you know, if, if you had a night shift, whatever it may happen to be, or if you had a day shift, you could actually go and vote and not stand in line for, for, for all those hours. I think what we've seen though is i think what we have to acknowledge is that some states have gone to a total mail-in system and they've been very successful with it and i think that uh it seems to me that you know when, when something is working uh forcing them to throw it out doesn't strike me as a particularly intelligent approach going forward i think this i think that we can create a series of national standards That can be in terms of sort of have an overriding rubric of saying okay these are the things that every state has to have and then let the states operate within their own jurisdiction as to what works for them and what doesn't work for them what we can't do is we can't allow states to pass laws that, that disenfranchise effectively if not if not legally people whether they're rural or whether they're old or whether they're black or whether they're brown or whether they're women or 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 what may happen to be it's one of those things where you have to recognize for example why don't we have elections on Sundays well we don't have elections on Sundays I mean most people don't work on Sundays because it's a day that people go to church why don't we have them on Saturdays well for for Jews it's a problem because especially for Orthodox Jews they don't do things like that on Saturdays so you've got all those things where we are a multicultural society it seems to me that this is not rocket science, folks. This is a question of how do we get the right people in to vote, and by that in terms of legitimate people, and how do we make it easy? And if we need to spend a few more bucks to make it work, that seems to, me to make a lot more sense than worrying about some of the things we're spending money on.
1: Armstrong Williams and Alan Katz, I'm sure if our politicians were as gracious as you all are, we would have solved this a long time ago. Thank you both so much for joining us. I can't remember the last time we hosted a debate where both sides tried so hard to find common ground. I had such a good time. Thank you so much.
2: Well, thank you very much you. for having me. Yeah, thank Thanks you so very much. much you and you guys were terrific also.
1: This is The Debate, a podcast from Newsweek. We'll be right back.
0: Welcome back to The Debate, a Newsweek podcast. So, Badia, I thought we heard some more agreement than I was expecting to be fully candid there. What were your kind of takeaways from that discussion?
1: I thought it was really interesting how they had such different reads on American history, but then sort of came around to a very similar position on voting rights and on what our American future should look like. Um, and, And I did really enjoy how they were both striving to avoid a kind of racial essentialist language on either side. So I thought that was really important and interesting, and I learned a lot. What about you?
0: It was a good discussion. I find this issue so frustrating because as I was just kind of intimating in my last question when I was throwing out a proposed compromise here, um, it, it really just seems like there is such like an obvious meeting ground in a way that there isn't necessarily an obvious meaning ground on a lot of, like, issues that kind of rankle our, our discourse, right? I mean, like, you know, think about, like, abortion. I mean, like, you know, I'm a, I'm a pro-lifer. If you're pro-life, if you actually think that um, that life begins at conception, it's very difficult to compromise on that issue, right? But this issue is—the the, the voting rights debate is not like that. I mean, like, it just seems like, it, like basic statesmanship and prudence is called for. Um, so— Anyway, I, I thought we kind of heard kind of uh, the inklings, maybe, uh, of, of a possible compromise towards the end of that discussion. I want to actually kind of just uh, publicly just say for the listeners, uh, I, I apologize to the listeners if I was a little harsh on the ambassador there for the big, the big lie rhetoric. That's a serious pet peeve of mine. Um, it, it just really kind of grinds my gears a little bit, and I think it does kind of contribute to kind of the hyperpolarization of our discourse. But um, anyway, overall body, I thought it was a great discussion.
1: Yeah, I think what we're seeing is I have been noticing the Democrats getting better at something that I actually really don't like, that the Republicans are very good at, which is branding their opponents in a very simplistic, hyperbolic way. Um, That's something that Republicans have long been very good at and Democrats have struggled with. But you're seeing this a lot around sort of the big lie formulation that you objected to, as well as around conversations about critical race theory you're just seeing this kind of lowest common denominator discourse take over on the left where the the point seems to be less to be accurate and more to cast the opponents in a cartoonish way. So I, I hear what you're saying, and, and I, I really respect that Armstrong Williams and Alan Katz were both trying to resist that in their own ways.
0: Well, we were very grateful to have them both on. You can find Newsweeks of the Debate on apple podcast spotify where basically wherever you get your podcast so leave us a good review hopefully and we'll catch you the next time this is the debate on newsweek podcast
1: see you next time